Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. God has been dealing with me about a couple topics that I, I really want to um, address with you. Honestly, usually in these situations, it's God speaking to me, and I'm just sharing with you what God is saying to me. And so this this morning, I want us to um, go back into the Old Testament. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Second Samuel. I don't have time to read the full-on account of everything that's happening here. I would encourage you when you get home or th- throughout the course of this week to go back and get your Bibles out and read Second Samuel chapter 13 and read it all the way to chapter 15. And I'll talk more about some of those scriptures here in a moment. I just want to give you some highlights then I'll try to come in and fill in the blanks for you. But 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 21, talks about David. David is one of my favorite Bible characters, so we're going to talk about him a little bit this morning. Chapter 14, verse 21. Then the king, being David, said to Joab, Behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom. Then on, down in verse 25, I'm going to read verse 25 and 26. I probably should have read 27 to you as well, but I'll reference it. In verse 25, it says this, In all of Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. When, whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. Y'all wonder why I look the way I do. I have to do the same thing. I have to cut it out right there. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard, or about 5 pounds. That's what that equates to. So when his hair would get to be about five pounds, he would go cut it. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 28 says, Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. And then out of order, I want to backtrack and read to you so it will catch your attention in Second Samuel chapter 14. The last half of that verse says this, But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. In a different version it says, but God does not take away life. He works out ways to get the exile back. David was without a doubt a powerful leader. In the course of the history of Israel as the nation of Israel, there has probably never been another king that was as anointed and as powerful to lead as David was. The Bible declares that David was a man after God's own heart, and so all you have to do is go and get your Bible out and begin to read in the Old Testament when Saul, who preceded David as king, when Saul would have his mad spells, when he would lose his mind, the Bible says that the only thing that would solve that for him and calm him down was that David would go get his harp. And not only was David a great leader, great David was an anointed and powerful worshiper because he could grab his harp and he could begin to play those psalms that he would write out on the backside of the desert. And the Bible says that Saul would calm down and get a hold of himself. David was anointed to be a powerful leader. David was anointed to be a powerful uh, worshiper. He was an incredible individual. However, when you begin to look at David to discover principles and ideas about how to be a father, David's life is not the life that you want to observe because the truth is is that David's family was extremely dysfunctional. In fact, it was utterly 
dysfunctional. If there was ever a family that belonged on Jerry Springer, he could have built his whole show on this one family. Because when you go and you examine the family life of David, you discover that his family was marked. Talk about being marked by pain that I talked to you last week. There, If there was ever a family that was marked, devastated, crushed by pain, it was David's family. Because you can find out if you read that David's family was marked by incest. It was marked by jealousy. It was marked by bloodshed. And in the case of his most handsome, most popular son, Absalom, it was even marked by rebellion. You've got to understand that Absalom was an up-and-coming leader. Absalom, Absalom was, uh, he was a poster boy for Studs R Us. He was extremely powerful. He was well built. He was physical. He was, he was athletic. And the Bible says that he had no blemish on him, that he was perfect, that, that the ladies would melt at the sight of Absalom. I don't know if you've ever had to live with that. I know what that, I'm playing. Some of you've had to live like that, where when you walk into the room, the women just, they just go, oh, and they just melt. That was Absalom's experience. He had perfect hair. I hate him already. He had perfect hair. That was what Absalom was like. He was gifted and he was a player. I know some of you don't understand what that means, but he was a player, if you will. He was a ladies' man. He had, he had the pick of any woman he wanted. That was the picture. No blemish, no mark on him. He was gifted. But Absalom had some problems. You know about Absalom's most significant problem was that Absalom had an ego. Absalom began to listen to his unwise counselors and he began to read his own press clippings and as they began to praise him and admire him and tell him how awesome he was and how good looking he was, he began to read his own press clippings and it caused him, his ego to expand and he got the big head, if you will. And so he was unwilling to allow the natural course of succession to take place and he began to think in his own mind, Whatever David can do, I can do better. And whatever David ought to be doing that he's not doing, I will do it now. And so you know what happens. He has this appetite for the throne, and he has this design on the crown, and he wanted to force his way into the kingship. And you remember the story. He rebels against David. But the passage that I read to you out of 2 Samuel chapter 14 takes place just before his ego runs away with him. Just prior to having an ego issue, we discover that one of the key issues of Absalom's life was not only his ego, but prior to that was this found in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 was that Absalom had a problem with holding grudges. Because if there was an ever a risque portion of Scripture that if I had been God, I would have canceled out of Scripture and not put in there. If there was ever a section of Scripture that is kind of tawdry and yucky, it's Second Samuel chapter 13. Because in Second Samuel chapter 13, what we read is that Absalom's brother Amnon rapes their sister Tamar. Amnon falls in love with his own sister and tricks her to coming into his bedroom and he rapes her. That is not a pretty part of scripture. And we see that Absalom finds out about this rape and it bothers him. And here's the issue of his life. He cannot get rid of grudges because what we discover is that Absalom, the Bible says, that he waits two full years to take revenge 
and he kills his own brother. He waits. He works behind the scenes. He sets Amnon up. He tells his servants, don't act like anything's wrong. Don't let Amnon know that I know what's going on. He works for two solid years behind the scenes working out his revenge plan. And two years later, he kills him for raping their sister. The Bible says that David finds out what Absalom has done. And David doesn't do anything about it other than sending word to Absalom that he's upset by what Absalom has done. And so Absalom is afraid and scared that his father is going to rebuke him. And the Bible says that Absalom flees to Geshur. And he lives there with his grandfather for three solid years. I need you to understand that Absalom is separated from his father for three years. Get that into your mind, into your heart this morning. The son has no contact with his own dad for three years. And then I re- read to you out of Second Samuel chapter 14 what happens. Joab begins to work on David. He's friends with Absalom and with David. And he begins to work on David and say, you need to bring Absalom back. And finally, after a period of time, after three solid years, the Bible gives us this one portion of Scripture that is perhaps the saddest, if not one of the saddest sections of Scripture in 2 Samuel, chapter 14, verse 28, where it says, Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, and he did not see the king's face. David gives in, and he sends for Absalom, and he brings him back into Jerusalem. Get this in your spirit. Absalom's been gone for three years. And now it says he moves back into Jerusalem. And for two solid years, he does not see the king's face. Understand. I need you to read between the lines. I understand sometimes that my imagination is a little wild. I understand that, but my imagination has been running with this passage. I need you to read between the lines this morning. Understand that Absalom lives in the same town as his father. He lives in the same town and community as the king, and he never sees his face. How does that happen? Does that mean that Absalom was never invited to family functions? Does that mean that when they got together to celebrate Thanksgiving and eat their turkey, that they never invited Absalom? He lived in the same town, lived on the same community, neighborhood, maybe lived on the same cul-de-sac as his daddy. And because of the, 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 the tension there, he was not invited or maybe he chose not to go. How does that happen? Does that mean that when... The 4th of July parade, I know they didn't have those, but just humor me if you will. When, when David is in, riding in the convertible chariot in the 4th of July parade and he's throwing out manna. I don't know what they threw out those days. They didn't have ripe candy like we do, and so they're throwing out manna. I don't know what, but he's driving down the street in the parade in his convertible chariot with the spinners on the wheels, and he's looking ahead, and everybody's clapping and waving, and he sees down the way, just a little way, is Absalom's family's represented there. When he gets to that point in the parade, does he, in fact, turn his back on him and refuse to look at him so he won't have to pay him any attention? Maybe Absalom and David are in Walmart. 
And they're walking down the aisles, minding their own business. And suddenly out of the corner of Absalom's eye, he sees his father three aisles over. I know y'all have never done this. But he sees his father three aisles over. And he realizes, that's my dad. And he turns and goes the other way so they can avoid contact with one another. How do you live in the same town, run with the same friends, live on the same street, and never see the king for two solid years? How does that happen? This morning, I want you to know that even though Absalom never saw the king's face, Absalom was still gaining the benefit of being the king's son. The fact that he was out of relationship with his father had no bearing on the fact that he was still a prince. The fact that he didn't see his father had no bearing on the fact that because he had the same last name, I don't know what David's last name was, all I know is that because Absalom was part of David's family, he still remained to be blessed even though he was out of relationship. I can prove that to you because if you go back and read in verse 27 that I did not read to you, the Bible says that his family, Absalom's family was blessed. It says he had strong sons and a beautiful daughter how many of you know if you have strong sons and a beautiful daughter you're blessed just because he hadn't seen the king's face did not diminish the fact that he had favor on his life that there was some measure of favor because he still had the last name of the king he was still family members with the king and therefore favor resulted in his life in fact not only was his family blessed his finances were blessed and I can prove that to you too because in 2 Samuel chapter 15, the Bible says that when Absalom would get up in the morning and begin to ride through town, the Bible says that he had a chariot and 50 men running out in front of him heralding his arrival. In other words, it was like what you see in Oklahoma City when there's a funeral procession. The police come to the intersection and stop all the traffic. That's what it was like for Absalom everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, his 50 men would run out in front of him and stop traffic so that everybody knew that Absalom was coming. He was blessed. Even though he didn't see the, the, the face of the king for two solid years, Absalom, his family was blessed and his finances were blessed and he had favor. This morning... The thoughts that I want to give to you are really more a challenge. Because I begin to wonder as I've thought about this passage of Scripture, here's a young man that lives on the same, in the same neighborhood, exists, resides in the same community, perhaps lives four houses down from his daddy and never sees the king's face. I thought about that and thought, doesn't that parallel most of our lives? Could it be? Might it be? Perhaps it's true that Absalom's life is in fact a glimpse or a picture or a snapshot of how we live. I thought about this. I thought, you know, if you're here this morning, most of you are faithful in your church attendance. You're in the same neighborhood as the king. I thought about the fact that you are able to 
hang out with the same family members and the same friends because I got news for you. We don't come to church and it just so happens it's just coincidental that a bunch of us get together and we don't know each other. The Bible says that he fits us all together. He jointly fits us together. He makes us a family. And so when you come into passion, you are actually hanging out with family members. And like Absalom, some of us are hanging out with family members. And isn't it true that we bear the benefits of having the same name as the king? Because we're called Christians, little Christ. We bear the name of our king. In fact, we bear the benefit of the name of our king. We have authority and we have ability and we have uh, this, this power in us and resides in us. And we are blessed because of the name of the king. We are known by our name. And our families are blessed. And we find that our provisions are blessed. And we are still an heir to the throne. And yet my question, my challenge this morning, the thing that God has been saying to me, the, the question that he has been challenging me with over the last few weeks is this. I wonder how many of us live in the same neighborhood as the king, hang out with the same family members of the king, still bear the benefits of authority and relationship and what it does for us and who we are. How many of us get all of that? And just like Absalom, we've had no face-to-face -face encounter for years so most of us sit through worship services one worship service after another worship service after another worship service and we participating we participate by allowing the words to roll off our tongue we may even lift our hands but we know the truth that in the depths of our heart and in the depths of our spirit although we are blessed and although we have favor and although we are hanging out with the same family members we are not having a face to face encounter with the king we have the ability we have been given the authority to go past the outer courts into the holy of holies where we can peer into the face of god and yet many of us go years living in the same neighborhood never touching him how long has it been since you encountered him i know you're blessed you're supposed to be because of your name. I know you have favor on your life, and I'm thankful for it. And you should have favor on your life because of who you are. You are a prince. You are an heir, a joint heir with Christ Jesus. Therefore, you should be blessed. You can't help but be blessed. But my question this morning is, have you encountered him lately? See, the truth of the matter is this, as a body, when we began, we said that our core values, what we were going to be about, our vision, we could write some fancy, eloquent vision that would blow everybody away. It could be five pages long and try to force you all to memorize what we're going to be about. But we decided the best thing we could do is get down to brass tacks and right down to the bottom line. And we said that everything that we were going to be about can be captured in three words, encounter, equip, and engage. But I came to tell you this morning that if we don't encounter God if you come to church week after week and don't encounter God if you go through your life on a daily basis and live in the same neighborhood and get the blessings of God on your life but don't encounter God none of the rest matters because if all you do is become equipped then you will kill people with knowledge because the Bible says that the letter of the law kills 
And if all you do is engage our community, I hope we bless people and give coats and cans like we're going to do around Thanksgiving. I'm glad we're going to do Angel Tree. I'm glad we serve hot dogs. I'm glad we can help people who are down and out. But hear me this morning. If we don't encounter God, if all we do is engage people and touch people, then change the name on the sign to the Lions Club because that's all we are. It all stems from and revolves and is based upon whether or not we have a face-to-face encounter with our King. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to tell you there are four steps to getting back into His face. I want you to know that there are four things that we have to do to be able to encounter him. I'm not satisfied with you knowing about him. I'm not satisfied with you being blessed by him. I'm not satisfied with you living in the same neighborhood that he lives in and hanging out with the same family members. What I am longing for is for you to be able to say, I have encountered God face to face. I've looked into his eyes and he's changed my life. How do we get there? First, we have to remove obstacles. The truth be told, all of us have obstacles that keep us from seeing or seeking His face. My question to you this morning is, what is it or who is it that keeps you out of God's presence? What is it in your life that has become an obstacle that keeps you from pressing into God's presence and getting to know God? I wrote some things down. Maybe you fit into one of these. Maybe it's your comfort zone. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's the pain that we talked about last week. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's an experience you've had. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's religion. Maybe it's your grudge. Maybe it's apathy. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's the spouse that you're sitting next to right now. Could it be a friend that has become an obstacle? What is keeping you from going hard after God? What's your obstacle? Because I came to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter if it's made out of gold or made out of feelings or made out of flesh. If there is anything between you and God, can I tell you this morning that whatever is between you and God has become your God. That is the literal definition of an idol. Whatever separates you from God, whatever comes between you and God has become your God. And so we've got to make sure that we don't allow anything to get between us and God that keeps us from pressing into his presence. I don't have time to go back and read all the accounts of the Old Testament that teach us something. It teaches, oh, I wish I could go back and read to you how Gideon went tore down the stronghold, the the high places of his father. He was getting rid of idols. I wish I had time to go back and recount all of Old Testament and read example after example that before God would move on his people and deal with his people, they would have to go back and remove the idols in their life. I don't have time to do that. But what I do have time to do is remind you that in the New Testament, the Bible very clearly says that nothing is supposed to separate us from the love of God. In fact, he lists them. Can I just remind you? I know I've read it to you in the past, but can I just pull it down and tell you the things that that it says cannot separate us from God? Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, danger, angels, demons, death, life, present, future, power, nor anything else in creation. None of those things are supposed to have the innate ability to separate us from the love of God, to keep us out of his presence and out of relationship. So my question is, is if any of those things have separated you from God, who gave them that power? And who did the separating? Steve, you don't understand. I've had a hard time. I understand. That shouldn't separate you from God. 
You don't understand, Steve. I got something going on in my present moment right now that I'm just not able to get over. I understand, but that thing is not supposed to separate you from God. You don't understand. My future is bleak, and I'm not sure I know what I'm going to. Nothing shall separate us. If it separates you, you have allowed it to separate you. And what we allow to do, things to do, is they become obstacles to his presence, things that should be walked over and get things that we should get past become an obstacle that keeps us from getting an audience with the king. My question to you this morning, I need you to examine your own life, is what is it in my life? Is it my lunch plans? Is it my own plans? What is it that is keeping me out of God's presence? The second thing that we've got to do is we've got to fall on our face. In order to get an audience with the king, we must go back and pick up this truth that we should humbly recognize that not only, I want you to catch this statement, we should humbly recognize that we are not only blessed enough to be allowed in his presence, but we should also occasionally fall on our face in a posture of repentance knowing that we have also neglected the opportunity to go into his presence. I need you to get this this morning. When you walk in those doors... You're not just coming to hang out and put on a fashion show. When we walk in these doors on Sunday morning, we are being given one of the most grandest, greatest privileges in all of the world. Do you understand that when those doors open, whether you like the songs, whether you like the smoke, whether you like the preaching, the reality is, is that when you bust through those doors because you brought God with you, that we are walking right into the presence of a living God. The God of the universe is here. What an honor. We need to fall on our face and recognize that we don't deserve access. Oh, we do have access. The Bible says in the New Testament that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was ripped in two, and immediately we were given access into the throne room of grace and into the throne room of God. We don't deserve access. I need you to understand, we are always unworthy. We are only worthy because of what Christ has done for us, and we walk around in the worthiness gained for us by Christ. But if you pull it all down, I don't deserve to be in God's presence. I'm thankful I can, I can get there. But I don't deserve it. And we take it for granted. Do you understand that we have an audience with the king of the universe? Do you understand that all he would have to do is wrinkle his nose just a little bit or furrow his brow and I would die and so would you. He could strike us dead in a moment's notice but he gives us grace and allows us the honor and the privilege of coming into his presence. That's why Another young man approached David the king and teaches us something. Mephibosheth comes into the king's presence in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The Bible says that he falls on his face. I started thinking about it. I never thought about this before. It wasn't really that hard for Mephibosheth to fall on his face. He was crippled. He was handicapped. It shouldn't be that hard for us to fall on our face in humility before God because the truth is, I told you last week, we're all handicapped. I didn't say we we're all hindered. I said we we're all handicapped. And so there ought to be this attitude like Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth knew how to get into the good graces of a king. He fell on his face. And this is what he said. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And because he came in that kind of humility, the Bible says that that position produced a 
response from David, and it produces acceptance and favor and an invitation to live and dine at the king's table. Can I tell you this morning, if we would humble ourselves and once again recognize that we don't deserve to be there, but we're thankful we are there, if we would take advantage of that opportunity that's been given to us and we would present ourselves in humility before God, it would produce the same response and we would be invited to the king's table. Every week when we come to church, we should walk into this building with bated breath. Every time we walk into this sanctuary together as a family, expecting God to be here because He says He would be. When we recognize that we are in His presence, we ought to be just a little nervous. I'm ready for some of you to come to church with a little bit of a queasiness in your stomach, not because of the swine flu, but because you understand I'm coming into the presence of a living God, and that makes me just a little bit nervous and a little bit uneasy because I feel exposed and I feel vulnerable, and I'm not sure I can handle this, Him ripping my, my facade off and showing me for who I really am that ought to make us nervous that ought to bring us to the place where we come in here just kind of nervous and waiting and sitting on the edge of our seat rather than sleeping through church ready and seeing whether God is going to show up and what he wants to do we got to fall on our face the third thing we got to do is we got to go back and begin to seek his face we got to get back to this place like David. David cried out in Psalm chapter 27, verses 7 through 10. Listen to what he says. He says, hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Listen to verse 8. You have said, he's saying to God, this is what you've said, God. You said, seek my face. David understands that's the instructions for our life. God is instructing us this morning to go back to that place where we seek his face. So David responds and says, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I see. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. For my mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Seek his face. And then David comes back in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 11, and he says, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always my question to you this morning is have you cried out for his face my question to you this morning is have you been about seeking his face always Every morning when you go to work and clock in, are you seeking God's face? When you get here on Sunday morning, are you seeking God's face? Are you always seeking God's face? The command is seek his face always. Our life depends on it. Our strength depends on it. We must seek his I, I wasn't going to use it, but I used it this morning in the first service. I've used it before, but I want to remind you of one of my favorite quotes. I think it speaks to this. It says, the proof of desire is pursuit. We chase what we really, really want. The best example I know of is a young man that's just getting ready to turn 16, sees a convertible Corvette sitting on the side of the road, needs a little work. They want about $8,000 for it. He's been saving since he was a little boy. And all of a sudden, he realizes he's a couple thousand dollars short. I promise you, the proof of desire is pursuit. He will work three jobs while all of his friends are hanging out on Friday night. He'll be at Burger King flipping burgers. While everybody else is paying attention to something else, he will be going, oh, I can change it and make it a girl because it's true there too. He never cleaned his, himself up. He always wore nasty looking jeans, never put on any deodorant wouldn't get a haircut but he, when he sees that cute thing sitting across the room he will clean up and put on aftershave and try to put on his best because the proof of desire is pursuit I am declaring to you this morning that we get what we seek 
And we've got to come to this place where we begin to seek His face always. And then last, I just wanted to encourage you this morning out of what I read to you out of order. I don't normally read them out of order, but I need you to get this in your spirit. In 2 Samuel, I read it to you there in chapter 14, verse 14. We need to understand that God is devising ways to get us into His presence. There's truth there this morning. It teaches me that God wants me in, pre- in His presence more than I even want to be there. That's what it says. Let me read it to you again. It says, but God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. In other words, what I came to tell you this morning is that God is working behind the scenes of your life and he's pulling strings. He's doing whatever he has to do. He's making up ways. He's sitting around thinking, get this picture in your mind. God is sitting on his throne right now, and he's saying this in his, in his spirit. What do I have to do? What, what could I do to get Michael Raven into my presence? Do I have to work this out? Do I have to make a, uh, an adjustment here? What, what do I have to do to get Quinn's attention? Do I, do I have to cause the worship team to sing a particular song? Because if that's what it takes, I am devising methods and ways to get people into my presence. How do I get Kelly Allen to know me, to come back into my presence? How do I get her to see my face? I will do whatever. I have to devise ways to get you back into my I will work it all out. I am came and this morning to tell you that God is doing his very best. God is designing services. God is bringing people into your life. God is pulling strings to devise ways to get you back into his presence. He's working overtime. He's using his creative ability to try to figure out how can I get such and such and so and so back into my presence because I don't want to take away their life. I want to make sure that they get my face. So all the trouble you've been going through, that's just God setting you up. All the turmoil you've been facing, that's God working behind the scenes, pulling strings, trying to get your attention, trying to get you to trust him again. All the blessings and favor on your life that you've been experiencing lately, seems like everything is going right. That's not so that you'll put trust in yourself. That's God working behind the scenes saying, if I just bless him, maybe he'll pay attention to me. I'm trying to bring him back. That's what God's trying to do for you. He is devising methods that's why when you walk in here on a sunday morning and the service just seems all about you i had somebody tell me a couple weeks ago it seemed like they were you were just preaching to me i was i didn't have anything to do with it god did that he set it up to pull on you and get you back so i don't know where you are in your relationship with god i do know this there are a lot of us have been living in the same neighborhood benefiting from having his last name we've been blessed going in and coming out god cannot lie he said we would be blessed in our coming in and our goings in the in the field and and everywhere we go we would be blessed you can't lie and so we've been blessed but my challenge to you this morning is have you seen him face to face lately how many years has it been since you had an audience with the king We're going to do things a little bit different this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come back. They're going to sing. I don't know what it's going to take for you. 
I don't know what it will take to get your attention. I don't know what God will use. I just know this. He is devising methods to get your attention. Listen to me. Everybody looking right here. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, can I clue you in this morning? He devised it. He worked on you to get you here. He made it possible for you to get here. He's made everything that's happened up to this now. He was devising this before you were ever born, that you would show up on a day like this so that he could get you back into relationship with him. And it's very simple. All you have to do is ask him. But the other good news is this, is that maybe you've known Jesus and maybe you know God for all of your life, but you've been living on the same street where he lives, but you don't really have an audience with him. He's been working on you too. I want to pray over you, and then we're going to do this a little differently. I'll give you some instructions. Father, if there's one here this morning that does not know you, we are seeing the completion of all the things that you've worked out to get them here this morning. I pray that they would respond to you, and they would accept Christ into their heart and become a child of the King. I pray that that would happen. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior and you haven't asked Him into your heart, now's your chance. I just, we want to agree with you in prayer. If that's you, just quickly, would you raise your hand and pull it right back down? We won't promise you. There's one. Anybody else that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Savior? He worked it out for you to be here this morning. I'll give you a moment longer. Anyone else? All right, I... We had one, and we're going to pray with them in just a, in a moment. I'm going to send somebody to them to pray over them and with them. I want the rest of you to just listen to me. Here's, here's the instruction. I don't know what it's going to take to get you into God's presence. I just know this. I don't want you to leave here without knowing Him and having an audience and seeing Him face to face. So the worship team is going to sing. And as, I'm getting ready to dismiss you as they sing. This is what I'd like to ask you to do. I'd like you to I'd like to ask you to do whatever it takes to get into his presence for a few moments. If that means you kneel, kneel. If that means you get up and walk into a corner and get all by yourself, then do that. If that means you get out here in the middle of the aisle and lay face first, do that. I don't know what it's going to take. I do know this. We have an invitation from the king to come to his table. That's why this morning we have a communion set up. I'm going to take the lids off, and you're going to be at your own discretion. When you're ready, you feel like you've come into his presence and you've encountered him face to face, then I encourage you to come and take the bread and the cup and spend a few moments in communion with him representing I made a connection with God. I'm giving you the opportunity this morning to bust right into the throne room and to get to see your daddy, your king, your God. What's it going to take to get you there this morning? I bless you in the name of Jesus and I dismiss you, but I encourage you not to leave until you've touched him in Jesus' name. privilege to have you join us for this time of ministry. To find more Passion resources or to make a donation online, visit www.passionchurch.tv. Remember, you can't live without passion.